This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. Oh Lord Jesus, we have no wine in ourselves today. We come empty. We come thirsty. We need you. Lord, as you strengthen your first disciples for deeper faithfulness, open the eyes of our heart that we would see your glory this day and be strengthened for greater trust, greater obedience, deeper repentance, and greater faithfulness, not only to you, but through you, to and with one another. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, I'm feeling empty today. I said to uh, my wife uh, right beforehand, I said, oh, I think I have the Lord's word to feed me through today. I have no wine. And she says, you've been whining all morning. (laughs) And that is usually a sign and symptom of uh, having uh, a lack of uh, the wine or the Lord's presence. And then I was really struck today as we're going through the service already and thought, um, it's it's very humbling, but yet it's very reassuring to start out every service with uh, having to come to the Lord who is so good to us and say, again, the only way I can come is with a confession of my emptiness and that emptiness marked by how I've hurt your heart and how I've hurt one another. We have sin. You know, it's just not words that we go through in a ritual. It's a reality. You know, we, he gives himself to us in covenant, steadfast faithfulness. And yet, no matter how much we want to, the reality is, and we come to his table to receive bread, wine, his body and his blood himself, we have to come with the very, very humbling and somewhat embarrassing confession that we have not loved you with our whole heart and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. His only response to us is loving kindness and goodness. And yet we come, I have not been faithful. Have mercy upon me. And we receive his presence and his forgiveness. So today in John's gospel, we're told it's the first and the primary, the foundation of, uh, of something that he did at a wedding that revealed his glory and uh, it becomes a, um, a, a light that is turned on for the rest of John's gospel as other lights. I came in the church today and I began to turn lights on and turn lights off and adjust this and adjust that. And thinking as we, as we move through uh, John's uh, gospel, he's turning on light after light after light in the first part of the gospel, revealing the person of Jesus revealing the word come flesh, revealing God's presence and glory in Jesus. And then at the end, the big light gets turned on with his crucifixion and resurrection and ascension where he receives the glory from the Father. First, he's lifting the veil, parting the veil, lifting the curtain, giving little hints. He's 
manifesting himself, but yet he remains hidden of who he is. And then the Father, he receives from the Father glory of who he is. But whenever we begin looking at the signs of Jesus, let's always begin at the end of John's gospel where the big lights are turned on and uh, it comes right after where Thomas confesses that uh, makes that confession. He puts his, his hand into the side of Jesus. He puts his fingerprints into the nails. And, uh, and Jesus says, don't be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas confesses and says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, you've seen me, and that's why you believe. But blessed are those, and this this draws us into it. Blessed are we today who have not seen and yet we believe. Actually, we come to see in a new way when you believe first. I had a, a little, a little um, a cousin and he was so happy to see us one day and he um, just blurted out, I'll see you when I love you. And I thought, wow, you've just spoken a profound truth at the heart of the gospel of John. When we choose to repent and turn to the Father, we see him in a way, and we see Jesus in a way that we can't see otherwise just by following him around. When we respond to one another with covenant faithfulness, like God has first responded to us, we begin to see one another from the heart of the Father. I'll see you when I love you. I'll see you when, and, and so it's not just believing with the head, but when I repent, when I respond to you with trust and with faithfulness, when I follow those two simple words at the end of John's gospel, follow me, then we'll see him by doing that believing first. I'll see you when I love you. So right after this profound confession and Jesus saying is, yeah, you're blessed when you see and then believe, but how about believing first and then coming to see me and know me in a whole new way? It says, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in, the, in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So when we come into this wedding at Cana of Galilee, uh, how are we uh, to come into? We have, what are we to get out of it? We have the answer already. We are to expect to meet Jesus. We are expect to go and meet him, revealing himself in Messiah, God with us, written Torah becoming living Torah in the flesh and that, and that uh, as we see him in that we are, to, we are to turn to him to put our trust and obedience there to give ourselves to him as a giving in marriage and in the doing of that we will have the life that he hungers to give us. Now incidentally it's sort of intimidating speaking at this church. And so I made sure that I studied in a library for a lot of weeks, a couple hours every day for two or three weeks. And I get to the very last commentary in the very last shelf. 
and the, and the, uh, and, uh, uh, the commentator says, he says, you know, all these different things that you can go deep, 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 deep into John. The way all, the, the, he says it's, a, it's an embarrassment of riches of symbolism. The most that we can say is these things are possibilities. And scholars have argued over all sorts of things. But they aren't the primary thing in any of the signs. And, and in this, and in this, uh, uh, this uh, 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 turning of water of wine in the wedding, it says don't get trapped into uh, over-focusing on the water turned to wine or the quantity of the wine or the excellence of the wine or the conversation between Jesus and his mother, you know, or, uh, you know, on and on, or the conversation between the bridegroom and the master of the feast, on and on and on and on. It says it's all a distraction if it takes us away from the primary purposes of our emptiness and God in the flesh is there with abundance, grace upon grace, to offer himself. It's all about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. The identity of Jesus, the person of Jesus, the presence of Jesus, the call of Jesus, the offering of Jesus. And what will we do with that? Not only in our response to him, but how we respond to one another. So moving back into the reading itself, and again, starting from reading backwards. <laughs> and uh, it says in chapter 11, what are we to get out of this? The be- this is the beginning of signs, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. He lifted, began to lift the curtain to all that was going to come later at the end with his crucifixion, his resurrection, his, his ascension, reigning in glory, uh, all the glory he's received of the Father. He's beginning among Uh, not so public, just to his disciples, he began to show forth who he is. And it says his disciples believed in him, not just with their head, but they were strengthened because they'd already believed in him. Uh, All the the, the two chapters that come before is uh, this statement after statement, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And this is my favorite, to say, you know, what is Jesus beginning to offer when when the wine is transformed into an abundant quantity, and then the confession coming from the, the mouth of the wine steward of its excellence, of its superiority, is from his fullness, we all receive grace upon grace. The same we'll hear later when Jesus says, you know, come to me, all of you who thirst and, and, uh, uh, and, and for living water, and out of you, out of your heart, will flow, will gush a never-ending stream of living water. You know, feed on the, uh, you, if you would have asked of me, he says to the woman at the well, I would have given you living water to drink. To the people hungering for, for bread, he would have said, no, no, you're searching for the wrong kind of bread. Ask of me, I'll give you the bread of life. But if we could just get this picture of the heart of God desiring to give us far more than we ever ask or imagine. And from his fullness, we receive grace upon grace. 
Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, that's enough. But grace upon grace, and, and it's, a, it's a picture of a gushing, never-ending, ever-flowing. Our cup runneth over, the, the river keeps gushing, the fountain keeps flowing. It's too much, Lord, it's too much. And the Lord says, no, it's not, no, it's not. I've got more for you. My heart is bigger for you than you could ever imagine. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. You know, John says, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then his disciples begin to follow him and they, they confess right off the bat, you know, you are the Messiah. We have found the Messiah. Uh, and uh, uh, and um, then we have found him of whom Moses in, uh, wrote in the law and also the prophets. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So from, from, uh, uh, the, um, from the author's lips and pen, from uh, the words of uh, John the Baptist, from every disciple that comes along, there's this immediate, immediate uh, recognition and confession. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And basically Jesus says, you haven't seen anything yet. Where do you see heaven open with the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man? You haven't, we're only on, we're only on the, the end of the first chapter. You haven't seen anything yet. And so now, entering another day, they come to this wedding of Cana of Galilee. And uh, uh, I, I just, here's one of these things you can only speculate. Jesus walks into that wedding now with a new status that he hadn't had to people who might have known before, even his own mother. Now he has a group with him and he's functioning like a rabbi with followers. Was there any sort of buzz going around as in John's gospel that even though they were going to be strengthened in their belief by what they experienced, was there some sort of just something that they carried with them, whether in words spoken or just in their bearing of if they've already had that confession on your lips, or we're following you because we believe you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And, we've, and, and some of us had followed John and he said, no, this is the lamb of God who's taken away the sin of the world. You know, I must grow less and less. He has to grow more and more. What was it like when they entered the party? I mean, were they somebody who sort of were beginning to steal the show? Or was it completely hidden? Doesn't really answer that. But what is clear, Jesus now came in with followers functioning in a whole different way. Weddings go on during those days. Those of you who study weddings in, in that culture, you know, they go on for days, maybe a week or so, uh, at least a week or a week, a couple days up to a week, okay. And uh, uh, that gets expensive. It's a poor little town. And uh, while it's the family's responsibility to provide the wine, some have said, well, but uh, the way that the family gets the wine to provide is the guests provide it too. And yet the one word that's haunted me most in the weeks that I've been praying and studying through this is the word when. And when the wine ran out, that there is a, um, it's not the wine ran out. 
It's when. It's like this was bound to happen. It's not supposed to happen. It's a humiliation. It's a shame to the bride, to the groom, to their families, and perhaps to the entire community. It's an exposure to them of no matter where their heart's desire is, their poverty. But I find it's huge that it doesn't say the wine ran out, it said when the wine ran out. There's an inevitability about it. As the sun goes up and as the sun comes down, as the tide comes in, as the tide goes out, whenever there's weddings around here like that, no matter how much it's supposed to be the other way, and no matter how great the shame, here it goes again. And that's the part I identify with most this morning. And there is a great service of praise and worship. The Lord is going to be present in his word and feed us with his body and his blood. But yet when we came in, it's not if, but when. We're people here who have no wine. The first thing that we have to do is to make a confession of sin against God and our neighbor. Do you identify at all with that word when? And again, much ink and scholarship uh, spent on the interaction between Jesus and his mother. But I think the bottom line of what we can say here is nobody has a claim on what Jesus is going to do and when. No, it was not a rude response. It was not a cold response. There's the same affection in there as Jesus, when he used the word woman, says from the cross at the end of, God's, uh, of John's gospel. There's only two interactions where, the, where Jesus interacts with his mother in John's gospel here and at the end. And so with all affection, with all tenderness, with all care, with all respect, uh, it, we're, we're, we're hearing that from this point on, it's my father and I, my father and I, my father and I. And there's no claim that could happen in this story by bride, groom, mom, disciples, or anyone that's going to go and have some sort of um, inside track to Jesus. There's nothing that any of us have today that we can do to make Jesus sort of do what we want and hop to our tune. But having made that clear, if we put ourselves in the posture of a disciple the same way that Jesus' mother did and said, you know what? He's in charge. Just whatever he says, do it. And that's what we're here today. Jesus, what are you saying to me? So that we can do it. And uh, so, you know, we know the rest. Very, very calm and not calling attention to himself, not stopping the wedding to say, watch what I can do, just fill those pots, take some to the master, and then the bridegroom doesn't know what happened, the bride doesn't know what happened, the family doesn't know what happened, a few servants knew what happened, the disciples knew what happened, but all of a sudden the party that had ground to an awkward halt is now picked up again with saying is, wow, what happened? But man, this is good. And uh, again, we're told what we're to take out of this, and there's so much more with the symbolism that you can go on here, but, but for important for right now is that this Jesus did to show who he is so that his disciples who had already confessed him and followed him could not do something more with their brains but be strengthened for something deeper in their relationship with him and with one another. All the ways that we can tie this into the rest of the Gospel of John 
and other things. The thing that really spoke to my heart uh, this, this week was the first reading we had. You know, in, in, in the Anglican Church, uh, we're linked into uh, uh, churches all over the world of different denominations and, and, and the other sacramental traditions, uh, even the Catholic Church. We all serve the same set of readings for every Sunday. This is, this is a reading appointed. The, the, these readings go together. It's, it's given to, to the congregation and to the preacher to work with together. And the reading for this lectionary that was chosen to bring out uh, something important uh, for this gospel reading was from, if you remember, I'll read it again, was from the 62nd chapter of Isaiah, where we're given the picture that is a favorite all throughout the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament, uh, and scripture closes with it in Revelation of who is this God who enters into covenant with us? God describes himself as the bridegroom. And so in, in the, from uh, chapter 62 of Isaiah, God is speaking, and this is like, oh, is, is this shocking to me? I mean, I, I, I knew it before, but somehow it hit me just in my heart and shocking the last couple of weeks is who is this bride, when God uses the language of a bridegroom, what kind of a bridegroom is he? And, it's, and there's, it's shocking and it's tragic when you look at who we are and who God is. He is one who is faithful, and we are one who he had to find as unfaithful and to cleanse and to restore and to forgive and to clothe and... And that happens over and over and over and over again. I mean, if you picture us at the, at the wedding feast and picture him as the bridegroom, I believe one of the things why the disciples, they saw his glory was not just that they saw water turned into wine, but who turns water into wine throughout the Hebrew scriptures? It's God himself who does that. He was the, announcing himself as, I am God with you, but I am God with you as the bridegroom. And I'm the God with you as the bridegroom, as like in Isaiah, as in Jeremiah, as in all the prophets, is one who has had to deal with your unfaithfulness. And I've chosen to forgive and to marry you and to be faithful with you. And then every week when we come in, we have to face that same reality all over again. So here's what, here's what God says to one unfaithful, us, me, you, who he comes to and seeks out and finds. Here's what he says to us from his heart. You are a crown of glory in my hand. You're a royal diadem to me. You're no longer going to be called forsaken. You're not going to be called any more desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in you. You shall be called married. For the Lord delights in you. As a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God rejoices over you. Friends, I am not a trophy bride. And I will be presumptuous enough to say that if we're honest, you... We together are not either. Shame on us. That's who we are. 
And the amazing thing is when we realize that we don't come to him as our bridegroom. We don't come to the marriage feast of the Lamb. We say it in the service today. We'll say the words. Happy are they who are called to his supper. We're being called to a marriage supper. A reminder of that every week. But Lord, I am unfaithful. I'm desolate. I'm forsaken. I'm not worthy to receive you, but only say the word and I shall be healed. And here's the good news. The Lord is gracious. I'm reading right from the service we're going to say later. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. Draw near with confidence. Receive the body and blood of the Messiah which he gave for us. His blood which he shed for us. Eat, drink, and remembrance that he died for us and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. Was this, these scriptures, on the minds and hearts of the disciples? Was that what they were being strengthened in? They'd already confessed him as, you're the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You're Messiah. You're the King. You're the Lord. You're the one that Moses and the prophets spoke about. John identifies him later. He says he is the bridegroom. This new rabbi who has come in, he's the bridegroom of the messianic age. John declared it right after. He's the bridegroom. He is to grow more and more, I less and less. I'm just here as the best man. At the end of John's gospel, Jesus uses... um, Uh, when he says, I go to prepare a place for you, he's using language of the bridegroom. What does the bridegroom do in ancient times? He gets betrothed, which is a legally binding contract that you're not married, but if you were to break it, you'd have to get divorced. So it's a legally binding, married, not married situation. During that time, you go to your father's house and you begin to add on to the house. My father's house has many mansions. Now I, as the bridegroom, go to prepare a place for you. That where I am, we can, you know, this, this home can grow together. And because the bridegrooms get a little bit anxious, they don't know when it's done. The father, okay, I'm done. Can I go get my bride? Uh, no, you know, you've got some windows to put in. You've got a ceiling to put in. You're not done yet. Ah. And so it can't be left up to the bridegroom to know when you go back for your bride. It's up to the father's timing when the hour is going to be. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I am going to come and take you to myself. When's it going to be? Only the father knows the time. Okay, son, it's ready. Go get your bride. And here he comes, coming in to get his non-trophy bride. You and me, shameful, sinful, breaking covenant with him over and over, breaking covenant with one another, where the best that we can do when we come into his presence is to confess again our need of him, and to say in his mercy, this is my body, this is my blood. Sort of a strange wedding. <laughs> sort of a strange wedding. Just a, a few more. It just, just struck me this week to go and pick up this um, marriage imagery from the Hebrew scriptures. Behold the days, you all know this, Jeremiah 31. 
Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. What do you do with a broken covenant, husband? Okay, I'm going to try over. This is the covenant that I'll make with them with the house of the Lord after those days. I will put my, I'm not going to throw away my law. I'm going to put it in in their minds and I'm going to write it in their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And then uh, uh, in Amos, the, the messianic day when the bridegroom comes, it's also imagery of, of wine flowing in abundance. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, from out of the end of Amos, when the mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills will flow with it. And again, you can just, you know, uh, pick and choose your way all through the Hebrew scriptures for this imagery of when Messiah is with us, bringing in the, the, the messianic age, his presence is one of a bridegroom and marked by the abundance and superiority and just embarrassing flowing forth of new wine. And well, we might as well just go in and do it all and mention, you know, out of Revelation, just to have these pictures how Scripture ends of, of uh, uh, because we're, we're sitting at the other end of the table of this wedding feast in eternity. I heard the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering saying, Alleluia, the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come. His wife has made herself ready. He said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the lamb. Then I saw a new heaven, jumping ahead. Then I saw a new heaven, a new earth. The first earth had passed away. The sea was no more, and I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard the loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them. They shall be his people. God himself will be with them, be their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. No more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. There shall be no more pain. The former things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne says, behold, not I make all new things, but I make all things new. I'm not trading up to somebody else. I'm making you new, restored, cleansed, forgiven, new heart. But not all at once. I'm not going to make all new things. I'm going to make all things new. I'm not going to throw you away. I'm going to make you new. Right. For these words are true and faithful. So, again, we could go on and on and on. But the only point that I'm making is this. The first of all signs in the Gospel of John, connects with all the rest to be about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus showing up in covenant faithfulness that's shocking and tragic 
to us who are not worthy, who are not trophy brides, who have, and will, God forbid, but it's the reality every service, we hurt his heart over and over and over again, and especially as we hurt one another. I have, I am worn down, I am sorrowful, to use an American phrase, I'm tapped out, I'm fed up, I'm broken, I'm sort of stuck as I just, we move through our culture, around our world, through our congregations, through our family systems, through uh, parents to children, husband to wife, uh, all the places that God wants us to be places of covenant that we know so well how to throw one another away and how to walk apart, but we still have not been able to found a way to live in that covenant unity through which he prays at the end that the world will know and he will be glorified and, and God is glorified and the world will know and come to him by the way we live with one another. He's showing up in covenant faithfulness this day and pointing to the final marriage feast and calling us to himself just as we are. And I think what he wants to put within us, as it says the disciples believed in him, is they wanted to grow in that capacity, not with their heads, but how can we now who are following you follow you in deeper covenant faithfulness to you? And then he says at the end of God, uh, John's gospel to Peter, do you love me? Yeah, 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 you know we love you. Do you love me? Yes, do you love me? Yes, you know I love you. Then what are you doing with my sheep? He actually didn't say that. He said, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, feed my sheep. But my frustration says, if we say we love him, what are we doing with one another? And uh, we all say we want the Father's heart. I want the Father's heart. But the Father's heart is a heart that breaks. And we have a broken and contrite heart for our sins against him. That's great. And he says, now will we stick with one another enough that, uh, that we'll, that we'll if, if we seek to be faithful to one another, we're going to, how's that song go? I'm going to stomp on your heart and tramp that sucker flat. That's, that's, that's a whole country. He stomped on my heart and he stamped that sucker flat. And that's what happens. You know, have you ever raised kids? You've been a teacher? You've been a pastor? Have you been a part of any sort of family or system where it's supposed to be safe and relationships are supposed to be sweet? And, and, and all of a sudden we go back to those things. I got hurt there. They tramped on my heart and they stomped that sucker flat. How'd that happen? There, this is our book of common prayer this year uh, in the Anglican Church in America. It's 40 years old this year. So I've been using it as a priest for 40 years. And there's only two places in this entire book where the word when comes up that is used when the wine ran out. The first is in the baptismal service. It says that after we say, do you believe in God the Father? You know, we've already confessed Jesus as Savior and Lord. We're just getting ready to be baptized. We all renew our baptismal covenant together. We say, I believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then it has this amazing phrase in here. 
Will you persevere in resisting evil? And when you fall into sin, repent and return to the Lord. It doesn't say if. Well, sin's never a good thing, and it's not advising just go out and sin so grace can abound, but it's acknowledging the reality of what it is to live in covenant with one another. We blow it. And so it's shocking to hear when you, not if, when you fall into sin, will you repent and return to the Lord? I will, but with God's help. The second place out of two places in the whole prayer book where it only uses the word when is in the marriage service. The couple is already married. The first thing they're going to do after marriage before they kiss the bride or kiss one another is they're going to pray. We're going to pray for them. And they're kneeling down in prayer. And this is what the congregation with the clergy pray over them. It has about 11 different petitions, but here's one of them. Give them grace when they hurt each other to recognize and acknowledge their fault and to seek each other's forgiveness and yours. That, what a bold statement to say on your wedding day. But what a necessary statement. Give them, what, try harder? Get some therapy? Do this, well, maybe it's all part of it. But basically is, this is impossible. Whether it's a parent-child relationship, husband and wife relationship, pastor to congregation, among the body, it's impossible to live in covenant faithfulness with one another unless we're in relationship with him who is in covenant with us. But if we are in relationship with him who's in covenant with us, then we are to turn to him for his grace continually, his presence, his power so that we can bring that same capacity to those relationships which he and his goodness has given us and which are precious to us. Grant them grace. Grant them your presence. Grant them your power. Grant them whatever it is, your abundance. Grant them yourself. Grant them so they can do the impossible that when, not if, but when hurt comes, we recognize and acknowledge, not uh, 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 but me, 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 and then to seek each other's forgiveness and God's. So, big point I want to make today was, are you feeling the when <laughs> the wine runs out? And the where you know if your wine's run out is not just how am I doing with Jesus, that's important, but how am I tramping all over one another? Where are our the places that are most precious to us no longer feeling safe? And how are we growing in our capacity to have the Father's heart to, uh, to seek and place his grace to work? That grace is going to only, if we just walk away and walk apart and, and just run, we're never going to, and we're never going to see and know who the, what the Lord can do. But if we believe in the sense of faithfully enduring and trusting and obeying and repenting, we will be able to see in the sense of knowing and experience and tasting things happen within our most precious relationships beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. We'll see one another 
as we do the hard work of loving one another in covenant love. And then as it says at the end of Malachi, and then in those last days, the hearts of the parents will be turned to the children and the children to the parents. And this curse that is upon growing in our world will now be replaced by the new wine of the kingdom of God. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page or leaving a review in iTunes. You can offer practical support to Christ Church Jerusalem by clicking the Donate Now button on our Facebook page. Thank you and blessings from the City of the King.